So today I would like to talk about uh, our spring angle. Next Sunday we are setting a foot on a three-month journey we call Ango. And for most of us, it's not the first time we commit to intensive training period. Which means that we may be taking that step with some baggage of preconceived ideas, expectations, notions of how it will be, how it will not be, how I'm going to get through this, maybe some level of resistance. But it means we may not be so curious about it or energized. So before we even take that step together next Sunday, we have to examine individually with what kind of mind we enter Angle. And how much spring is there in the first step? You know, if you look deeply, you see that it's not very realistic to assume that we have done this before. In the same way we don't step into the same river twice. It seems as if it's the same place. It seems as if we have done this before. But it's not. You know, it's a, since last angle, Many months went by. A lot happened. We're not the same. Our understanding is not the same. So are we ignoring that? Or are we actually looking at the level of our understanding, the situation we're in right now, the current situation of our lives, uh, the current situation of the country, the world? And then matching the angle, matching the, the training period to that, which means being present, being alive, letting go of expectations, assumptions. So there is a pre-step, and it is to clear the palate, to come to terms with freshness, like biting into a fresh piece of fruit. We've had many times peaches, clementines, or whatever. But every time you bite into it, it's a brand new piece of fruit. Yes, you have an idea of how it's going to taste like. But you're not eating an idea. You're eating fruit. And this is the, the mind we want to cultivate when we enter an angle. You know, freshness awaits us all the time, step by step. But again, do we see it? Do we live our lives by that understanding? So this is one of the reasons I wanted to, to bring it up a week before we hold the Angro Entry Ceremony so we can enter clearly. So we can understand what we are 
committing to. The tradition of 90-day intensive training periods originated at the time of the Buddha, and even before that, actually, with uh, some ascetic groups. And during the heavy rains of the monsoons, nature would severely restrict people's ability to travel freely. They just couldn't move around as much. And they had to stay in one place. So for, for spiritual practitioners, it made perfect sense to obey nature and while remaining in one place, use the opportunity to deepen their meditation practice and strengthen the devotion to the Dharma and to the Sangha. And this practice has been adopted by many Buddhist traditions up to our time and has been modified also to, to fit the culture and the time that we live in. And this is what we need to do also when we, every time we look at an angle, to match it and to ask the important questions. We are not dealing with forces of nature that restrict our movement. And the times are different. But, like everybody else before us, we are all dealing with the same challenges of questioning or looking at what it means to function as a human being. And we are also experiencing the results of not dealing with it skillfully, not understanding how to function in this body <coughs> and not understanding how to function in this body as a human being gives rise to the three poisons, greed, anger and ignorance and creates endless conflicts which all essentially begin internally and manifest externally but they begin internally, they begin with what we are working on. It's interesting that uh, the, in Pali, the word good and evil, the words good and evil are kusala and akusala. Words that can be translated as skillful and unskillful. Kusala is skillful, akusala is unskillful. It's a very interesting way of looking at it because it brings up the necessity of training to be skillful, to know how to be a human being, skillfully. And the skillfulness has a lot to do with what am I dealing with, what am I matching, what am I meeting right now, and how can I be as skillful as possible in the way I am dealing with it, working with it. And in that, where is the last angle? Nowhere to be found. No one is nowhere to be found. It's not relevant. It's not important. Everything that is important is happening right now. Or at least everything that needs our attention is happening right now. Not that we don't learn from experience. Experiences of the past is just that the way we uh, put them to practice, to work, is skillfully at the moment that things arise. So skillful and unskillful. And to cultivate wisdom. 
to, to, to be skillful is to cultivate wisdom. To be unskillful is to cultivate ignorance. So for us, Ango happens twice a year. Twice a year. And it's a skillful way to cultivate wisdom and goodness. It's a skillful way to look deeply, to take the time to go deeper. We always talk about going deeper, but this is different. It has to be. We're not always practicing Ango. So Dogen, uh, when he spoke with his, at some point, spoke with his disciples about Ango, he said, since you already have that nose ring of yours in place, which in this case he meant, since you already know how to sit and how to practice, you know what to do when you get your butt on the cushion. You have some level of experience in that. And you have not avoided eating food, stretching your legs, or taking a snooze. You will remain so for the rest of your life. Since this is the way things are, you have not slackened and wasted your time by putting down your tools. He's talking about the practice, what we are doing as a Sangha, all aspects of practice. And we've been doing pretty well with that, maintaining a Sangha, keeping up with liturgy, Machines, Zazankas, for the most part, we're doing okay with that. We have some understanding. And he, and he looks at it, he says, those are tools, skillful means. Those tools include the 90-day retreat. Right? This is, again, one of those ways in which we deepen, through which we deepen our understanding, our practice. And he says, these tools include the nine-day retreat, which is the very crown and countenance of Buddha after Buddha and ancestor after ancestor, all of whom have continually experienced and expressed it intimately in skin and flesh, bones and marrow. Taking up the eye and the head crown of the Buddhas and ancestors, we make them into the eyes, sorry, we make them into the days and months of 90 days retreat. One retreat is therefore something equivalent to Buddha after Buddha and ancestor after ancestor. And what he's talking about is the tradition that comes to life with each angle, with each of our commitments and our practice. This is what the tradition is about. So if we do things in the same manner, or if we think we're doing things in the same manner, we're actually not bringing it to life. We're not practicing what has been practiced for many years. Because what, have been, what is or what has been practiced for many years is not repetitive. It seems this way, but it's not. How could it be? And then he says, so how do we use these tools skillfully without being secluded in one place and without retreating from our everyday responsibilities of going to work, raising a family, paying the bills, right? And for most of us, for most of us, this is simply not realistic. We can't take 90 days 
and go somewhere and be secluded in that way. When the Buddha himself was getting ready to lead a 90-day retreat, Angul, he spoke to Ananda, which is his cousin and his attendant, and he said, if I'm continually giving expression to the Dharma, my senior disciples, as well as male and female monastics and male and female lay practitioners, will not give rise to respect it. So, I am now going to enter the cave, he said, and sit for 90 days. When people suddenly show up and ask you for teaching, say to them on my behalf, all thoughts and things are beyond arising and all thoughts and things are beyond decay. But do we need more than that? Is, is anything that has to do with teaching ever more than that? I mean, there are many ways to say that. But that's plenty, that's enough. All thoughts and things are beyond rising and all thoughts and things are beyond decay. Having spoken thus, he concealed himself within the cave and sat in meditation. And Dogen commented on that and said, the Buddha went into the cave and to meditate for the summer, that was a summer retreat, because using words to express it is not completely the truth, but is merely a virtuous expedient means. To reach the truth, one cuts oneself off from using the spoken word and lets the, in the intellective beyond intellect. And how one reaches the truth. This is how one reaches the truth. To let, to go beyond mind, to go beyond intellect, to not get hung up on stuck on words or descriptions. Maybe not be so hungry for words Maybe be hungry for something else. For being able to see beyond the world. Muni was saying, this is why the Buddha cut himself off from human beings during the 90 days summer retreat. And he sat within the cave. Now, how do we understand that? This is very important because obviously that by itself can create a conflict. Well, he did that for 90 days and I cannot do it for 90 days. Well, how do I practice? Am I stuck? And he says here that what, what people are saying runs counter to the world honored one's intention as a Buddha. So if we think this way, we don't understand what he meant. If such people, like us, are going to say that his intention was to cut off speech and let the mind's function die out, then all productive human activities and undertakings would involve cutting off speech and letting the mind's function die out. Well, how would you function this way? It makes no sense. To speak of cutting off speech means all speech, all speech, and to speak of letting the mind's function die out means all function of the mind. And what is more, 
This account about him was never given for the sake of esteeming the absence of words. The point was not to leave everybody behind, to run away from anything. In all earnestness, this is important, he says, he dragged his whole body, his whole being, through the mud and water and went amidst the weeds that had sprouted up, never shrieking from giving voice to the Dharma. He spoke a lot. And he dragged himself through the mud with everybody else. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. And he found the Dharma there with everybody else. If any bunch of you all for you, us, call yourselves his offsprings. If any of us were to say that his sitting through the 90 days was to advocate silence, then I must say to you, that's Dolby saying, I must say to you, give me back the 90 days that you spent sitting here. Because you're wasting your time. Because you don't understand what it's about. Because you still jump between speech and silence between formless and formlessness. Buddha said simply, all thoughts and things are beyond arising and all thoughts and things are beyond decay. So if all thoughts and things do not arise, nor vanish, right, what is secluding secluded from? What are we secluding ourselves from when we are secluded? But I just want to add to that as a side note that Zazenkais, Sashins, and solitary seclusions are all actually essential and skillful aspects of practice. Not that we don't do that. We have to do that. But not running away from it. Because as long as we do that, we keep jumping between being with other people and being alone. Functioning in the world, in the madness, and then finding some level of peace and serenity on the cushion. That has never been the message or the teaching. But this is a relevant question for us since we are examining how to create 90 days of intensive training without seclusion. To retreat without retreating. So if we, if we really want to follow the Buddha's advice here, this means to cut off speech and let the mind die out while hearing a lot of idle talk. A lot of idle talk. And while functioning in the midst of constant inner and outer chatter. Like Dogen said, right? the Buddha dragged his whole body, his whole being, through the mud and water, as we do. And went amidst the weeds that had sprouted up, never shrinking from giving voice to the Dharma. 
Do we give voice to the Dharma in our everyday actions? Or do we give voice to something else? To different streams in us? We definitely give voice to something. Even in silence, we are giving voice to something. And this is what we have to be responsible for. And that's what we need to do with an angle. Watch. Be careful of the way we move, the way we speak, the way we shut up. Cherish the Dharma. Wake up to the Dharma. Manifest it. Other practitioners at the time of the Buddha found freedom from circumstances while being restricted by the monsoons. They were restricted on one level. And our responsibility is to find this freedom while being restricted, or at least feeling restricted, by work and family obligations, by everyday challenges. Otherwise, we never get out of this cycle we always seek for a way out. We look for a way out of this. We wait for the next vacation, for the next retreat, or the next whatever. Not realizing that what we reject now, we are going to reject later. What we are fearing now, we will fear later. Edgar Roshi said, Distractions or obstructions are just negative terms for your context. Circumstances are like your arms and legs. That's a beautiful way of saying that. They appear in your life to serve your practice. Whatever it is that we perceive as a challenge to my practice is there for me to practice. It's not an obstacle. This is exactly what the practice is about. If I choose to see it that way. But as long as I choose to see it as a challenge or, or as an obstacle, I should say, as an obstacle, then I've assigned a meaning and a name to it and it's going to be an obstacle. It's going to be something I would like to get rid of, uh, fight, argue with, complain about. Then he says, she says, as you become more and more settled in your purpose, your circumstances begin to synchronize with your concerns. Chance words by friends, books, and poems. And even the wind in the trees brings precious insight. Really. Because it's available. This is uh, the voice of the Dharma speaking to us. Are we responding? by speaking in the same language? Do we understand the language of the Dharma? So to not get distracted by life's circumstances, we are going to, together, take on the commitment to tighten up the slack and cultivate a stronger and more resilient post of practice.
and we work on staying rooted in the Dharma. There's no need to make anything up. All we need to do is go deeply into what the Dharma is teaching. And the Dharma is not just what we chant, what we read. The wind, the bird flying, anything is teaching. So how are we going to do that? I would like to offer ways for us to do that together and individually, specific ways that tie us directly to the tradition and the Dharma and actually tie us to each other as a sign. So the first one I want us to look at and commit to, of course, is daily zazen. Now we all have to make a commitment to daily zazen practice at home. It's not in question. It's the spinal cord of Zen training. And it's not a suggestion. If we don't sit every day at home, we're not practicing. So if you have not yet cultivated daily zazen, then making this happen is your first and foremost commitment. And if you are sitting at home, then add 5, 10, 15 minutes to that, or maybe another period. Do more. Going deeper is very connected, related to doing more. But not just doing more for the sake of doing more, doing more to go deeper not as repetition of the same thing. But as a way to increase the opportunities to go deeper. So there is answer. The second thing is to create an altar. Something modest. It doesn't have to be anything special. Small shelf at home. Small statue of the Buddha. An incense bowl. Maybe a flower if you want. Something that helps you not get stuck by or not get distracted by the continuous stream of thoughts and emotions. Like opening a window and seeing the, the sun. And that's what it is. To be reminded of. Oh yeah, there it is to declutter a little bit. And then we have an altar. So the third thing I want to talk about is, is offering an incense and bowing. So each time before you sit, prepare your mind for the work you're just about to do. It's not just sitting to get through a period. We sit to do work. And in the same way that we come to class, Aikido class, you know, we, we take our time, we go to the change, we change, we put on a uniform, we bow when we get on the mat, we sit down. There is a warm-up. All that prepares the mind 
for the activity so we can be open to learning, to deepening, to going beyond what we bring with us. So each time before we sit, before you sit alone, make an offering, light an incense as an offering to the world. It's a way to give. It's not a ritual, it's a way to give. And that is fresh and new. So light it for the world. Hold it against your third eye. Stick it in the incense bowl. And make three bows, prostrations. Also, we can chant the, the verse of the robe and then return to oneness. And then the four vows at the end. It matters. It makes a huge difference in the way we practice. It may sound too much or maybe too restricting to some people. And you may feel a little resistance when you hear such instructions. But if it happens, it's only because there are forces within us that feel threatened by the practice. There are forces within that know that that may mean the end for them. I think ignorance knows very well that it cannot survive in the presence of wisdom, in the same way that darkness vanishes when light comes in. There is no dark when light comes in. When wisdom is awakened, where is ignorance? It runs away. So if we want to go deeper and, and cultivate determination, we need to prepare the mind for the deepening process to happen. And then open it up to the Dharma. So if the voice of resistance wants to sway you away from that, just be kind to it, but don't obey it. Don't hate it, but don't listen to it. And prostrations, you know, in our culture there is a great deal of resistance to prostrations, to bowing. Because he raises the notion of subservience, which can only exist in a culture that is blind to inherent equality. Right? Because if, if we understand equality, where is subserviency? What is above what? What is below what? But our culture is blind to equality. And so it forces us to live as if there is no such thing. And bowing is the antidote for the madness that is created by a blind society. Society that does not see sameness. This is very important. It's one of the reasons why bowing is so powerful. 
And when you put your forehead on, on the ground and keep it there for a few seconds, not just to touch the ground and run back, jump back up. You actually have to keep it there for a few seconds. It quails the inner resistance. It subdues the restlessness. It does something. It's like magic. It feels like medicine if you, if you can get through the resistance. Or you take it with you to the, to the ground. Because if it comes down to the ground, the resistance has nothing to resist but itself. Because there are no oppositions on the ground. And this is what we do. We put our forehead on the ground so we can experience non-duality, no oppositions, true nature of all things, unity, equanimity. Nice words. All meaningless if we don't put the forehead on the ground if we don't experience it for ourselves. It's an amazing practice. In Aikido, we bow to each other and to the Kamisaka. But at the end, as you know, we bow to each other after class to say thank you. It has a very specific reason. Right? We say thank you, and this is the way we say thank you. So I remember a few a couple weeks ago, I was, I was practicing uh, in New York, and at the end of class, I bowed to my partner and I, I think I forgot who I am, so I kept my forehead on the ground for a few extra seconds. And then I, I got up, and then my partner looked at me, like, you know, she didn't say anything, but she was like, what's going on with you? Are you okay? <laughs> Why did you not uh, sit up right away? I could see it in her surprised look. And, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you want to put your forehead, you don't want to get up, because it just feels so much at home. It is medicine. So three bows each time before we sit at home. Three full bows, which means going all the way down, lifting up the hands, getting up. And in that, put everything else aside all the thoughts, all the emotions, all the resistance, the worry, the expectations, the anxieties. It's okay, don't let it go. You think you need it, keep it. Put it aside, just for the time being. And devote yourself to the Dharma, to waking up to the Dharma. Next thing, is reverence and appreciation. <laughs> reverence and appreciation. To examine the relationship with the animate and the inanimate. So for example, how do you relate to a piece of paper, a pen, your shoes, when you take them off, when you put them on? How do you fold your laundry? How do you handle food preparation? Is there appreciation there? or having food to prepare, or having spices to put on, for offering a meal to your family, friends, 
sharing time together around the table. Lots of precious moments go by without even realizing. I've done it many times, I'll do it many more times. What's the big deal? Why should I stop and appreciate? It's just our blah, blah, blah. But it's not. It seems this way because we are this way. Whatever seems dull, is it seems dull because we are dull. Whatever we do reflects us. There is no dullness or dimness. Only an attitude of dullness and dimness. And then yes, it looks like that. But step by step, breath by breath, reverence and appreciation. Things we touch and handle to people we speak with, whether it's face-to-face, -face, on the phone, by email, to raise the level of appreciation, to be thankful for living, for being alive, for the opportunity to share our lives with other people. Whether we agree with them or not is actually completely irrelevant to the level of appreciation we can bring into life. It's not about agreeing, it's about appreciating. So examine, maybe you take for granted. I think we do, quite often. Also, with encountering other people, with what kind of mind do we meet them? What kind of mind do we cultivate before we meet them? That's how we bring the practice of sitting into everyday life. That's how it comes to life. That's what it's about. So, with what kind of mind do you meet people? Do you experience judgment, fear, competitiveness? And if so, if so, is there any room for appreciation and reverence while you experience fear and judgment and worries? What will they say? What do they think about me? A lot of very self-concerned false feelings. All about me. What do they think about me? Will they like the food I'm offering? Will they think I'm a good cook? Or good whatever? It doesn't matter. Because offering is offering. Because being present to somebody is being present to somebody. And we make it about the other person. Because we choose to appreciate. We choose to bring reverence. We choose to be kind. We better choose, because if we don't choose, the judgments are very loud, the fear is very strong. Never mind that there is fear. Yes, there is fear, and there are judgments, but so what? Do we focus on it, or do we focus on the other person?
And the next thing on that list is liturgy. Liturgy. So after practicing for some time, you know, liturgy can become and can seem repetitive and dull. And it can actually be difficult to see that the dullness is actually in us. It's, it's, it's challenging. Because we do it every week. Right? We say the same words. But, you know, to experience the richness and, and depth of chanting sutras with the Sangha together, you know, we need to lose ourselves into the unity that is created through liturgy. Lose ourselves into that. Rather than look for ourselves, lose ourselves there. Maybe sometimes we look too much for ourselves. Because if you tell me I'm not this, well, tell me who I am. You know, give me something else to fill that void with, that blank with. So we lose ourselves to the sound, to the scent of the incense, to the way all instruments harmonize with the officiant and with the Sangha. We all come together. We come together to do that. Are we appreciating what is born at the moment we are actually chanting together? Or we're just doing it to get through that. I don't know. I know what I need to work on and what I'm working on. But I also know that we each have to do exactly that. So then we help each other deepen. We support each other. We give each other strength to do the individual work we all need to do. And then we do it as an expression of giving to the world. Liturgy is an offering in its entirety. It's an offering to the world. How can we offer anything to the world if we are so self-concerned? Well, I think we are offering nonsense. We are offering more suffering to the world that, it, that suffers because it is very self-concerned. But if I'm stuck up on my own issue, and complain to myself and to others about it. What do I offer to the world? What kind of energy am I sharing? And also, what am I awakening in the world? But if we really truly lose ourselves into the chanting, into liturgy, and we see it as offering of something precious that is inherent in all of us, is our birthright, then liturgy becomes a nudge for the world to wake up to its true self. We become an embodiment of that. And then the Dharma is alive and well. Simplifying and decluttering is the next one on this list. Simplify and declutter. So what I'd like to do, I'd like us all to 
during this angle to take the time and do some serious spring cleaning in our homes, our backyards, offices, also maybe the many activities we are involved in. Maybe we do too much. Maybe we jump around between one activity to another. Maybe we can cut back a little bit. Maybe we can cut back so we can recognize that we have created a lot of uh, complications for ourselves and allow walls that prevent us from seeing the simplicity of the Dharma, which is not dependent on anything. It's not about how much we do, it's about how we do what we do. And sometimes the more we do, the less present we are. We're always running around between one activity to another. I think some parents do it with their kids. I see that. They come here and then they have the next activity, the next activity, the next activity. Too much sometimes. But to, to, to look at the clutter, to look at, and the house too, you know, I know we have this uh, corner or room that we just shove all the stuff into, the stuff that we maybe bought all over the years and accumulated that we really never needed, but we thought we did. Now it ends up cluttering a corner of the house or half of the house sometimes. And we have to look at, do I really need that? Because when it's lying there, I may not be seeing it, but it's actually sitting on me. And it is suffocating the flow because I know it's there. Get rid of, simplify, declutter, purge. We need very little, actually. I'm not saying we should build a hut and live in a mountain. I'm just saying we should examine how much we have, how much extra we have. And then purge, and then see how much lighter we feel, actually. Because the extra is always a reflection of our attachments. And this is exactly what we work with. Suffer because we attach. Second noble truth. So clearing the inner and outer clutter can help us focus on quality rather than quantity. To go deeper into fewer interests rather than to skim the surface of many. You know, and I've heard from people sometimes, they say, I have many other interests. I like Zen practice, but it's one of my many other interests. And no, it's not. It can't be. Because when we, when we see it this way, we really denigrate it. We really kill Buddhism. Because we don't understand what it is. We make it one of many. It's not one of many things I am doing. It has to be on the tip of our nose. We have to see that it is about breathing, about walking, about talking, about 
living and dying, about functioning as a human being. It's drastically different than the way we think about activities. The last thing is also to examine uh, the usage of electronics and, and to create more blocks of space in our lives. You know, there's a new book that just came out <coughs> titled Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. There's a whole business out there of thinking of how to keep us hooked, like addicts. It's written by Adam Alter. A professor of psychology and marketing at NYU. And the book tracks the rise of behavioral addiction and explains why so many of today's products are irresistible. And he says in, this, in the description, he says, though these miraculous products melt the miles that separate people across the globe, their extraordinary and sometimes damaging magnetism is no accident. The companies that design these products tweak them over time until they become almost impossible to resist. Half of us, and they said because they actually researched that, and said half of us would rather suffer a broken bone than a broken phone. People actually said that. 46%, I believe, said that they would rather suffer a broken bone than a broken phone. And some people said that, well, at least if I, if I have to be home with a broken bone, I have my phone to entertain me. It sounds sick, I hope, <laughs> to, to us it sounds sick, because it is sick, but it's reflecting the sickness within. We created it. This is not by chance. We created this because we have allowed our mind to run, our minds to run amok. Because we haven't taken enough time to look deeply. And what he said is that millennial kids spend so much time in front of screens that they struggle to interact with real live humans. He also quoted from a research a few years ago that says that we have shorter attention span than a goldfish. It's pretty sad, isn't it? So what I would like to suggest to all of us is to become more aware of how often he actually said that he asked people how often they pick up the phone during the day, and he said most of them were uh, said that they're, they're doing it half the time they're actually doing it. Didn't realize that they're doing it twice as much as they believe they're doing it. So, a lot of it has to do with not being aware how often the phone ends up in our hand. I'm just looking at this, I'm just doing that. We all are in it. We all are suffering from the same malady. And also how often we find ourselves in front of the computer. How often we browse the internet just for the sake of browsing. And we have to examine with honesty how much of it is actually necessary. 
and how much of it is for the purpose of trying to quell boredom, to deal with our boredom, to run away from pain, to run away from looking. We may be good at sitting, maybe we got good at sitting, but it doesn't mean that we are getting good at dealing with this on an ongoing basis while we are functioning through what we call everyday life. That's where Ango comes in. This is where seclusion has to come to life. Retreat without retreating. The retreat to boredom. Go into boredom. Experience it. Go into where it feels painful. To create blocks of space, blocks of time, blocks of air, a breather. There's no doubt we can all do some cutting back on that. There's no doubt we can do less. And we can do very well with less. Less screen time, that is. And create more space. And those blocks of space can create like mini retreats in the midst of our hectic schedules. And give us the opportunity to face deepest challenges, <coughs> an opportunity to learn to stay with the fear, the pain, the memories, expectations, unpleasant events we hold on to, emotional entanglements. We need to do some really meaningful work untying these emotional knots and to realize that freedom of our storyline is attainable, available to all of us. And we can't afford to take three months off and seclude ourselves in sanctuary, but we can do a lot to create a sanctuary without neglecting any of our responsibilities. But we have to be honest about what it is we need to do in order to maintain those responsibilities and what do we do as extra just for the sake of entertainment and for the sake of running away from what we have to work with. Dogen wrote a meticulous instruction manual to the monastery cook. It was a very uh, important position at the monastery. And I just want to finish with reading a few uh, paragraphs from this manual and relate that to the instructions to what we need to do in the way we uh, conduct an angle everyday life. He said, when washing rice, preparing vegetables, and so on, do so with your own hands, with close attention. Vigorous exertion and sincere mind. Anything we do. Close attention, vigorous exertion and sincere mind. Do not indulge in a single moment of carelessness or laziness. Do not allow attentiveness to one thing to result in overlooking another. He's saying to be present, but the way he's saying it is totally different than be present. 
be present is so overly used these days that it lost its meaning. It's no longer an awakening, more or an awakener. It has too much connotations these days. Sincere. What is sincerity? What is vigorous exertion? What does it mean to cultivate a sincere mind? Instead, when ordinarily preparing ingredients, do not regard them with ordinary eyes. Deluded in parentheses. Do not regard what you're looking at with ordinary eyes. Don't use these eyes. These eyes are deceiving us. The whole body has to become an eye. And don't think of them with ordinary emotions. That's Dogen. How relevant is that? Don't think of them with ordinary emotions. Lifting a single blade of grass builds a shrine. Taking out the garbage builds a shrine. If we bring appreciation to the garbage, nothing is built unless we bring that kind of mind to it. It's an angle. Entering a single mote of dust turns the great wheel of the Dharma. Even when, for example, one makes a soup of the crudest greens, one should not give rise to a mind that loathes it or takes it lightly. Even if you think that those are not the best ingredients in your life, you can make the best life out of them. But that's not what I want. It's not what I expected. I want something else in my life. That's how we reject. That's how we don't bring appreciation. And, and that's how we don't practice correctly. Even when you make soup with the finest cream, you should not give rise to a mind that feels glad and rejoices in it. Don't make yourself out of it. If one is at the outset free from preferences, from the beginning, right? How could one have any aversions? When you put your forehead on the ground, who is there to differentiate between what's good and what's not good? What's better and what's worse? Who is there to see what's crude and what's pure? Even when confronted with poor ingredients, and I think we do often think that our life has poor ingredients. There is no negligence whatsoever. Even when faced with yeah, poor ingredients, scanty ingredients, one exert himself. Do not change your mind in accordance with things. Do not change your mind in accordance. The mind of reverence, the mind of practicing the Dharma, which we need to cultivate in this angle, and we will together, Whoever changes his mind in accordance with things 
or revises his words to suit the person he is speaking to is not a person of the way. Where do we speak from? Where do we speak from? That you still do not grasp the certainty of this principle is because your thinking scatters like wild horses and your emotions run wild like monkeys in the forest. If you can make those monkeys and horses just once take the backward step that turns the light and shines inwardly, shines it inwardly, then naturally you will be completely integrated. This is the means by which we, who are ordinary, set into motion by things. Right? We are set into motion by things. This is how we become able to set things in motion. So we are taken by what happens, but this is how we can become the master of what happens. Not controlling it, but knowing how to interact with it. This is how we go from being mastered by mind to be the master of mind. So we're going, into, we're going to enter the spring angle together with the utmost determination and commitment. We're each going to work on staying motivated in, even when we feel discouraged. And we're going to help each other. Help each other keep the wind in the sail by sitting together and through communication however we can, whether it's face-to-face -face or maybe through our Facebook group. Sangha Facebook. And I will, together with you, renew my commitment to support your efforts in any possible way. I will keep encouraging you. But also, I may say things that you may not want to hear, that may upset you. And I'm committed to holding your feet to the fire. I'm going to end with uh, a poem <coughs> by, uh, that was recited, was recited by uh, Dogen's teacher at the beginning of uh, an angle. He said, Set your bones upright upon level ground and to seclude yourself, scoop out a cavern in space. Pass forthwith beyond the gate of dualities only taking with you a darkness as dark as black lacquered pale. Only that. Take nothing. That is the mind we have to cultivate as we enter angle. So, to conclude that, I will later on today send an email with the Angle Commitment Form. And I want us all to look at that, fill it out, recognizing what we are committing to. And then next Sunday, we will hold the Angle Entry Ceremony. Also, we'll hold Fusatsu. Take the bows together as we enter together. And work on that.
work on going deeper, work on not doing this as previous past angles. Those are all gone. Now what? <laughs>